Hi, welcome to the Rare Bird Podcast. My name is Mark Weingarten. I'm joined today by the esteemed Bruce Ferber, veteran sitcom writer and showrunner, king of mirth, and <laughs> fine novelist. And he also has a book of essays, an anthology of book of, of essays about Hollywood and the people that work in Hollywood. And I'm going to get the title wrong, Bruce. Say it. Okay, so it's The Way We Work on the Job the in Hollywood, work. and I'm Bruce Ferber, and I'm happy to be here talking to esteemed producer and writer Mark Weingarten. Well, now that we have that out of the way, do we really need okay. to say anything else? I don't think so. No, that's it. <laughs> Good night. That's it. We're done. So, yeah. Bruce, you were, you were talking the other day about we were bemoaning the state of Hollywood, and you said to that the Scorsese op-ed was a must-read, and I wanted to ask your thoughts about that. I guess he was in the piece, if I remember correctly, he was decrying the sort of comic book omniverse that has ta- that has swallowed up Hollywood. Correct. Well, that was the first thing he wrote, and then he got right. this reaction from all these people saying, "Well, yeah, he was saying that Marvel movies." They're, they're fine, but they're not cinema. And the use right. of the word cinema was obviously, it, it, people felt that he was putting himself in a superior position, judging uh, what the movies that are popular today as not right. to be equal to what he was doing. So he got a huge backlash against this uh, original op-ed. And then he wrote another one to kind of defend himself and explain what he was talking about. And what he was talking about was that, you know, these Marvel movies do have great craft. They have some great people working on these things, even writing them. But to him personally, it's not the kind of movie making that, that got him and all of the people he came up with excited because those guys, I mean, they were the, they were auteurs. They were the equivalent of novelists. Right. Make their way finding their way, and getting to express their individual voices. Well, the difference being that even though Hollywood has always been Hollywood and it's always been a commercially oriented place, in a sense, there was room for a wide variety of uh, creative expression. Because at one, for a long time, I would say for maybe 25, 30 years, Hollywood did bankroll smaller films, independent films, daring films, daring voices, bold voices. And that's what you're talking, that's what you're referring to now. Obviously, everyone always talks about the golden age of the 70s, but it was a kind of film school for these guys because they were given, uh, there was a sort of like a, um, there was faith that was sort of extended to these guys saying, just do what you do. And now the money is so big and, you know, a movie could gross a billion dollars on a weekend the stakes are so high that it is completely constricted whatever kind of artistic uh, impulses the studios might have. Yeah, I mean, in, in the 70s, it was kind of the Wild West. And now you can right. say the Wild West in terms of streaming and technology, but that's a fucking boring Wild West. I mean, that's a Wild West 
that it, it, it's just all about it's, you know, what it, it's a mercant it's a mercantile wild west it's just about yes, money. exactly yeah. exactly so in the old wild west the old wild west was really exciting because you know these guys came out of film school like scorsese and jonathan demi and peter bogdanovich and they started working on these schlock movies for roger corman which taught them how to get a movie done on a budget, and the movies were pretty much terrible. I don't, I don't know that there is any great uh, Roger. They're charming Corman. but terrible. Yeah, I, I mean, right? They have but, their charm. It, yeah. Right. So, and, and Little Shopper Horrors is camp or whatever, but it right. it, it has camp appeal. But it was sort of the graduate film school for these guys, where they learned right. kind of the nuts and bolts of shooting and, and editing and getting it all in under budget. But then from there, you're right, the studios uh, gave them the money to express who they were. And um, yeah. there's a great story about um, Scorsese, who his first, his first feature was, was an independent film called Who's That Knocking at My Door that he did as yeah, an NYU. Yeah, it. it's, it's actually great. Yeah, it's great. And then from there, though, he did a Corman film called Boxcar Bertha with David right. Carradine, and right. you know, he, he and was Barbara proud. Hershey, right? Yeah, that was his first Hollywood feature, and the story went. And apparently, there's a YouTube clip on this where he uh, proudly went to show the, his first Hollywood feature to his mentor John Cassavetes. And John Cassavetes said something to the effect of, okay, you know, now you've made this piece of shit, what do you really want to do? And, you know, as anyone would be, you know, Scorsese was kind of like taking a pack, like, but it, 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 it set a fire under his ass, and, and that's how he got to Mean Streets. Well, the problem, Bruce, is that there's no room for failure. There's no margin for error. I mean, no one can... You know, that Beckett adage that's been mangled over and over again, you know, fail harder or whatever. You know, so it's like you can't do that anymore. There's no, right. you know, you know, I, I, I think Scorsese is just bemoaning that sort of creative ferment that allowed these guys to take chances on things, you know. And it just and, happened and to be a Venn diagram. It's very, very complicated because, yes, there are still tons of independent films being done you can shoot it on your iPhone, edit it on your laptop. Sure, of course. And then you try to get distribution or, or a shot at Sundance, and there are 12 million people doing the same thing you're doing. Because everyone can do it. Right, everyone can do it. And, and by the way, because everyone can do it, um, it goes back to my days in film school when not everyone could do it, but people were so uh, enraptured with the technology that nobody bothered to learn how to write a script because when the technology is so easy and at your command, that becomes the fun part, you know, shooting the movie, uh, getting the actors, getting out there, being on location, doing it, and there's much less care given to an actual story. Right. Uh, you yourself apprenticed under, not Corman, but someone of his ilk, correct? You... Can we well, talk no, about Black Shampoo? <laughs> my first job was on a Corman film, Death Race 2000. Directed oh, that's by right, Paul, Death Race. Yeah, directed by Paul Bartel, the late Paul Bartel. And that was a, a, the, the greatest experience because the movie was a two-week shoot. I worked as a production assistant, and for the first week I worked for free, and I did such a good job 
that they paid me $40 for my second week of work. But it was two weeks on location with all these young, enthusiastic kids just happy to be out there making movies. Now, again, this was a situation in which the script didn't make much sense. Um, the way Roger Corman used to work, this is really interesting. I don't know if you knew this, but when Roger Corman made a movie, he would have his secretary write the first draft uh, over a weekend. And then he would bring it in uh, and hire people like Charles Griffith to come in and do a second draft, mm -hmm. which is how That's he got brilliant. out of the I did not know that. First draft money. <laughs> I mean, it was all That's a scam, great. and everybody knew it was a scam, but everybody, he was using everybody, and everybody was using him to, you know, right. get foothold, and, and it worked. It, it, it freaking worked. It got me into that whole world, you know, and working on these crazy B-movies that were just a trip to work on, and I didn't learn much about writing back then, but, you know, I, I got my rent paid, and I had a great time, you know, being involved in all these kind of camp movies, and um, it, it was a great, great introduction. I mean, I think forgotten now by many, but he's a classic example. It just made these very personal and highly eccentric films. You're talking about Paul Bartel? Um, I, yes, Paul Bartel. No, I mean, what was he like to work with? Paul was the nicest man I, I ever met. You know, I came out to Hollywood, and I had a connection to him through my dad. My dad and his dad worked together in advertising. And he said, oh, when you're out there, call him. My dad said, call this guy Paul Bartel. And I called him. He said, mm -hmm. uh, I'm making a movie starting in a week. Uh, you can work on it. I can't pay you, but... Uh, you know, if you want to work on it, you can be a production assistant. And I found a way to do it, and he was just as gracious as could, as could be. Everybody loved him. And you're right. Uh, even Raul, one of the most eccentric, you know. I mean, one of the strangest parts. films ever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, he was a character. He acted in, in some of your other Corman films. And He's a very just, funny actor, yeah. Yeah, and just, just a terrific guy. So Bruce, I didn't I've never asked you this before, but how did you learn the craft of writing situation comedies? And how did you learn the craft of breaking a story, et cetera, et cetera, structure? And how did you teach yourself that? Well, you know, I began like everyone else began in the uh, by writing spec scripts. Uh, and I didn't really know what I was doing other than, uh, and, and the reason I did it, I mean, I wanted to be in movies. I didn't want to be in sitcoms, but I knew people who had, you know, gotten in the door and I figured that may be a faster, uh, entree into the writing world. And, you know, a half hour script didn't take as long to write, obviously as a feature. And plus, if you right. were writing an ep a spec episode of an existing series, that you just had to study the series and, and, and figure out how that went and, and write your spec episode. So in those days, right. in, there weren't 12 million film schools and everybody competing for the same jobs. And if you wrote a decent spec script, you could get it to people. And, you know, mine got to taxi and, you know, all these different places. And I knew um, one guy who I went to college with, one guy was working on Bosom Buddies and his ex-partner wanted to team up with another partner and I knew him from college. So after I wrote my spec script, they read my spec script and they said, why don't you guys team up and, and write a script for bosom buddies? So we did that. 
And I, I still didn't really know what I was doing. I mean, we were freelancing, and, and we kind of would go in and listen to the executive producer talk about story, and then we'd break it down and kind of trial, trial and error. We kind of learned along the way, and uh, yeah, I, I just kind of learned learned in the trenches. And, and in the beginning, I had to work on a lot of bad shows, and for people who did not know what they were doing story wise. But right. you know, in right. those days, right. get away with bad product and. You know, so I learned a lot about what I didn't want to do. And, and then little by little, you know, the, 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 that form kind of became clearer to me. And, uh, and the clearer it got to me, the more I wanted out of it. <laughs> right, right. Well, you, did, did you find that you sort of um, grew out of it or became too easy for you or not of a challenge anymore? Or what? Well, by the time I got out of it, I was ready to be out of it. I mean, I had achieved what I wanted to achieve in a sense. Right, I had right, not right. in my own right. show. So all I wanted to do after I did Home Improvement and Sabrina, I was running shows. I mean, all I wanted to do was get a chance to write my own series. And, you know, right. uh, navigating those waters is very hard. And it was especially right. hard for me during those times because – I was coming off family shows in an era where everybody wanted like the next friends clone. And, you know, I was not excited about the, those that they never worked. Everyone they tried to do was a failure. Um, so it, you know, it, it was hard for me and, you know, and then I had some personal stuff going on in my life and right. after getting through that, you know, I had come to the conclusion that I just, I just didn't have it in me to go back to that form anymore. And that's when I started right. writing novels. And when right. you write a novel, right. I mean, that is that is where you get to find out who you are as a writer and, you know, really express your voice with no limitations of, you know, commercials and network notes and, you know, all the stuff that drives you crazy when you're doing sitcoms. Absolutely. Well, I love the autonomy of writing books. That's the beautiful part of it. You know, you're really your own editor, your own boss. Your own, that's, that's why I like it. I just, you know, television, as you know, is so collaborative and it can be very frustratingly so too. Especially yeah, I mean, when you're talking about I, network I notes that are just awful yeah. and, you know, tone deaf notes and, you know, things getting twisted out of shape when they were fine to begin with you know i mean this is this and all facets of television you run into this i know. still the leonard stern book by my side at all times do you know the book no leonard, leonard stern who produced uh he produced get smart and i think he produced ice spy as well i'm not sure but oh yeah leonard stern of course right, yeah, right, yeah. Right. Big, big television producer he wrote a book, he compiled a book, I should say, called A Martian Wouldn't Say That. He was producing mm. uh, My Favorite Martian, and he got a network note right. on a script that said A Martian Wouldn't Say That. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and that's, that's, that's what we kind of all have to deal with. I mean, that is the, it's the title of his book. It's perfect. It, it, it kind of sums up everything, all the garbage that that we get i mean there was one thing in the book um they would there was some tv show about italian mobsters 
and the mobster's name was like, uh, you know, Angelo Maroni, and the note was, we think that sounds too Italian. Can we change his name to Seth Maroney? <laughs> oh. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, so this book... Well, that's, it, part, that's, that's part of the frustration of working in, in television, because it yeah. is, you're dealing with a network, and you're dealing with so much money, and everyone wants their five cents in, and it can get extremely frustrating. Fortunately, I'm working on a show that's so successful that the notes are almost zero. So that's we have no network interference. Right. Yeah. Uh, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure, sure, sure. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, you know, I, it makes it a glorious thing. I mean, our, our, our executive in charge of the show is a big fan of the show and is actually creatively help some of the spinoffs, et cetera. So he, you got to tell people what the show is. Oh, it's the batch. It's all the bachelor. It's the bachelor, the bachelorette, all the bats, the bachelor franchise. Right. So he's a big fan. So he gives us our head and we could just, and we just make the show and it does make things so much easier. It really does. Right. Because I, mean, uh, I kind of, because same thing. when I was working on home improvement, we were a top 10 show and the network would call me and they say, we want to do a show about this. And I would say, well, and it was inevitably a terrible idea. And I would say, well, you know, I don't mind it, but uh, I don't think Tim is going to go for it. But if, if you want to talk to him, go ahead. <laughs> and then it right. was they were afraid of him. Right. They would never do it. But, uh, and Bruce, I really, I loved, I love, you're actually a great novelist. I loved your, I loved your last Robert novel. Thank Tell you. me about the challenges of, uh, writing fiction versus writing, uh, sitcoms or, or, or films. What, what do you think is the, the big, the big, the big, the big difference? Well, I mean, it's such a broad canvas. I mean, and, and it, you are creating it from the get go and, and, and how you, create each project, you know, changes with the kind of book that you're doing, but um, it's just, it's scary because, you know, the kind of books, the, so my first book, Elevating Overman, the whole book came from, the, from this one character, and that was just really cool, allowing the character to take me through the plot, you know, and then my second book, Cascade Falls, there were a few major character, or more than a few, maybe there was one major character, but, but a lot of other people that, that I had to kind of figure how they fit in, how it all fit in. But the great part about a novel and the scary part of a novel is that you can go anywhere. You can change along the way. So what I do right. when I'm writing a novel, I can't speak for anybody else, but the whole reason that I, that I like it is that once I feel I have a beginning, middle, and end, and at least one character who I love, who's going to be my protagonist, who may be, you know, shithead or whatever, but is interesting enough for me to write, if I have that and what I think is the beginning, middle, and end, then I can let my creative spirit go. You know, I can, I, I can go with it, and, and it feels so wonderful to be in the moment and do that. But... The scary part is, is that, you know, uh, going off the rails, but the good part about television, I felt, and, and I'm sure you feel the same way during the, during the post-production on The Bachelor. 
So you're creating a story every week. In television, all right. those years of having to have the beginning, middle, and end and have the story move, mm-hmm. I feel really helps my uh, prose writing. I agree 100%. And, and I feel that I agree you know, 100%. I'm not right, but that's what I have, you know, outside readers for. But I feel the pulse, you know, and I, I can feel when it's slowing yeah. down yeah. or it, it's just not yeah. being where I, I want to be. And so television, I would say, was extremely helpful. In It's a great in help. Yeah, I mean, I don't have, a, uh, I don't let... A, a scene bogged down with, you know, 400 metaphors, you know, because that, right. I, it's just not worth it to me. You know, I got to I got to keep myself interested, if not the reader. But the other thing is that, you know, I'm speaking for you. I'm just assuming because when you're dealing with sitcoms, especially a, a hit sitcom, you have all these preconditioned behaviors that the characters bring every week to the show. You have to write to the character. You, everything the character says has to be within the strictures of what the showrunners created. So it's like it's very much writing to something. Whereas the novel, it's complete creative autonomy. You write whatever the fuck you want. Yeah, which is fabulous yeah. and scary at the same time. But one right, of which the is freeing and obviously it's a, there's no net under Yeah. Yeah, but one of the things you learn early on in sitcom writing that applies to novels is that you know, you'll have a scene going on between these two characters and, you know, somebody will tell you, wait a minute, you're stopping the scene to tell jokes. Well, okay, right. so that applies to novels is that if you're stopping the scene with too much description or too much uh, right. detail and, you know, you, and, and, and we're not advancing or, or, or telling people what's going on yeah. or providing an insight... Um, yeah, it's comparable in that way. Oh, I agree. I mean, our show is so codified. I mean, it's, it, it adheres to such a strict formula. It's such a strict structure. And that has helped me immeasurably with storytelling and other for and other, uh, media, I have to say, because the same thing you're saying, you can't fuck around. You have to tell, you know, every scene has to communicate something about the story, the character, you know, even though it's a two-hour show, nothing extraneous ever, you know. So it really helps immeasurably when you're writing. I don't know I if you guys do this, but you know, whenever I watch these shows, the, the reality shows, the, if I were to watch it two weeks in a row, it would drive the right. recap would drive me crazy. Do you do like mm-hmm. do you do like five minutes of recap? We do massive recap. I, <laughs> I don't love it. I don't love it. We do massive pre-vons and massive recaps. And you know what's funny about it? What's that? I would argue this, but I'm arguing into a black hole, is that most of these people now are watching on TiVo, Bruce. So it's like they're not even oh, looking at ads. They don't need recaps. They don't need a pre Some of them watch two in a row. It's a different, see, we're, we're still addressing, we're still in a way teasing the show in a big three network way as opposed right, to in a right, TV way. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I didn't even think it, of that, but you're right. Absolutely. You know? Yeah, I don't even, I, I feel we do, I mean, we have two, three people in charge strictly of cutting teases for the show. It's a big, okay. now, 
Matisse's obviously are important, as you know. I mean, you know, it's right. important to promote things, but yeah, we do have epic, epic ones, and I'm sure people fast forward to them a lot of them. Yeah, because I remember, you know, when all of these shows started to come out, like the Big Brothers and the this and the that, you know, as, you know, it's a, they're one-hour shows, and my first thought, you know, when I would see the recaps is, oh, my God, you know, they're getting like 10 free minutes of, of screen time, you know, just rewinding what I saw last week, <laughs> you know, as opposed to actual products. What's bizarre is that people seem to not care – the audience for reality television just want to just they want to see how it all goes down. Right. It's almost like you can tease the whole episode up front, but they still want to see how it plays out. Right. It's a weird. It's like a different way of watching television. Like TV, people watch TV. In in some ways, it's more sophisticated because it's not strictly about plot anymore. There's so many other right. meta things that people. I mean, when it comes to, I mean, one of the reasons our show sustains is that people read into it what they want. There's, I mean, you know, people have a million different interpretations of what they're seeing. And so yeah. this creates a dialogue, and the dialogue keeps the show in the zeitgeist. You know what I mean? It's like a feedback loop. Let me ask you something. I mean, does that... You've been doing this for how many years now? Ten. Ten years. Okay. So does that... How much influence of what you do you know, on a daily basis, it creeps into your, your own story sense and writing and, you know, but I mean, I would imagine, you know, like we said, the editing and learning that storytelling thing can only help. But in terms yes. of just the way you approach writing and I, I don't know. I completely compartmentalize it. That's amazing. Everything's compartmentalized. Yeah. I just, I just, yeah, I just do this job the best of my ability, and then I do that other thing to the best of my ability. But I don't, because my writing life predates my TV life right. quite I guess a bit. That's true. That's and, true. That's and I've been doing it for a lot longer than I have been doing television, and it's my passion. So I can compartmentalize. It's not like I'm writing like 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 every other word, or you know, right. I'm never going to write the sentence. I'm speaking my own truth, Ben. <laughs> That won't come out of my mouth. <laughs> These are the things I hear on a daily basis. I'm oh, speaking man. my own truth. I don't think she's here for the right reasons. And I think <laughs> I'm in love. You will never read those three sentences. In any of my work. That's fantastic. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> any other now, cliches I should know about that I can huh? cut out of my writing right now? Yeah, exactly. Will you accept this rose? Don't use that one. <laughs> you saw yes, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, yes. That must yes. have resonated for you a little bit because you got to LA in the early seventies, and you know I like it. I, I like the movie. Yeah, I like the movie as a travelogue. I didn't really like it as a movie. I mean, I, I like seeing mm -hmm. these places and locations. You know, I, I the reason I didn't love it as a movie is that it didn't really affect me emotionally or get me mm -hmm. engaged until. Uh, Brad Pitt's character went out to the Spawn Ranch. And he picks up the hitchhiker. They go out to the Spawn Ranch, and suddenly I'm engaged, and there's something right. happening that you know I didn't really care about DiCaprio's career. The, the, that great scene with him and the girl to me was just you know it was just a, like they say it's, it's a vignettes, 
and it, it's a yeah, long it wasn't series. Yeah, yet, but it did capture how it did. It did it have did. a great, like you said, the travel. It did have a great texture to it, and like you said, the travel log. I love that too about the film, and that was sort of enough for me just to enjoy that in the film and sort of get enough. I guess I I went I went in expecting just to be involved in the movie, and I just you know I remember that time in Hollywood. Just I remember it really vividly, and seeing yeah. those pictures. Just I don't know. It wasn't enough. It, it wasn't enough for me. I mean. Mm. Um, I used to go to. The, what was it like for you in Hollywood in the early seventies? It was it was the greatest thing ever because um, I didn't know what I was getting into, and the next thing I know, I'm renting a guest house in Santa Monica Canyon for 150 dollars a month, um, two blocks from the ocean, and all my friends from New York are you know giving me the Woody Allen thing about how you know LA's a cow town and you know New York's so much better right. and I'm agreeing with them because you know fine stay there I mean I, I right. it's like back then the world was your oyster here and um right you know b- between what you could you know you had the beach and the mountains and all this stuff and and Hollywood was, was it was a smaller you know, town too it was a smaller yeah. town and it was endlessly fascinating, you know, like what you're doing with The Bachelor, I used to do as an assistant editor. That's how I made my living, and right. I would write on the right. side. And when I was in New York, I had an assistant editing job and a documentary, and it was like really cool, and I thought maybe I want to be an editor, and these people are really interesting. And then I came out here, and I got in the union, and I started working with... Um, editors who were the sons of editors who were also the sons of editors and it was very blue collar these guys were considered like a pair of scissors no protection of these guys they had no no creative um leeway to do anything and and they didn't care i mean it was like working in the hormel factory you know everyone didn't want to be a fucking director Right. And so these guys, but these guys, they were already cynical about it. And so because so, what was happening is that all the future Martin Scorsese's were coming out and, and showing mm-hmm. up in these editing rooms with these guys who mm-hmm. were basically working class characters. And they would just roll mm-hmm. their eyes at people like, you know, mm-hmm. like us in a way. Um, but so that, that was Bruce. You'll, that, that, that reminds me. That's funny. That's like the you'll love this. It's very analogous to, you know, when the Beatles first started playing, uh, working with George Martin and all those engineers in white lab coats and all the, right. en- and then the producers wore suits and ties and it was very starchy and there was right. that culture class. It's similar. Yeah. I mean, I, I'll yeah. tell you a story. There was one story that I, when I was first got in the editing union, so I was, an assistant editor on a bunch of different films, but then I get in the union and I have to kind of take a step back. Once I get in the union, I have to be an apprentice editor and I get the, the union actually calls me. They have a job for me. You, that's how different the world is today. So they call me. <laughs> Someone calls you for a job. Doesn't yes, happen. The union says we have a job for you. Okay, if you if you want to take it, but you have to be an apprentice and here's the deal. So the deal was, and I took the job, I worked at Paramount, and I worked in the shipping department, and went and I was called 
I guess I was called an apprentice editor, even though I worked in the shipping department, it had nothing to do with that. But on the days when they needed extra help on movies or TV shows, they would call you up, you know, to help out, and you would be paid as an assistant editor for those days that you worked in the editing room. Pretty and, cool. Cool. Yeah. yeah, it was cool. So you got to go from, you know, you'd go from like television shows to movies, and and that, and that's how wow. I got on to uh, Jonathan Demme's movie, Citizens Band, and met. You know, I worked with him and Paul Brickman, who did Risky Business, and Freddie Fields, the legend. Oh, Paul and, Brickman. Now, there's a name yeah, in the past. He just disappeared. I mean, what happened Paul to Brickman? Paul Brickman? Uh, he well, he made Risky of... Business, and then he did another film that I liked very much. Whose name he did a film called Men right Don't now. Lie with Jessica Lange. Is that the one? That was a good film. Yeah, I don't think I ever saw And that. then he Paul, vanished. Yeah, Paul Brickman and Jonathan Demme were both extremely nice to me. I was a young kid, but they hated each other. And uh, Brickman, mm. you know, got oh, wow. Freddie Fields, Brickman got Freddie Fields on his team and they kicked Jonathan out of the editing room on his own movie. Wow. And, you know, yeah, years you later, you people, to, explain who Freddie Fields is. Oh, Freddie Fields was a super agent who was like a CMA and then they became ICM and he was just the the killer agent around He was town. the guy. He yeah. was the guy. And eventually he became a producer and produced movies like yeah. Lipstick and yeah, I forget what his other credits were. But Freddie Tons was... Yeah, he was a big dude. Um, so, and they were all really, really nice to me. You know, to, I don't know why, but it was so funny because the editor was one of these guys who was the son of an editor. So this was on a big feature. So you had this blue-collar guy who, uh, interestingly enough, edited features for Bob Rafelson, who is as auteurish as they come. But this guy had a history of working with these maverick uh, directors. And by the time he got... What was his name? What was his name? His name was John, John Link. John Link. John Link. And by the time John... And he was a nice guy too, but by the time he got to this cutting room with with Brickman and, and Demi fighting each other, they would come in and edit scenes on the flatbed uh, editing machine. And I said, John, don't you care that these guys are doing your reason? I don't give it. I just want this to be over, you know, because mm. he was so tired of dealing with these egos that, you know, by this point in the movie, just let them do what they want to do. And Well... Which calls us all the way back to the top of our discussion, which is that book writing is the best. (laughs) Because you only fight yourself, your own inner battle, which is a challenge, but you know, you're not getting into fights with people in the room. It's just you. You know, know, it's, it's funny because the other day, somebody, the fellow author, she was complaining to me about, she doesn't have, you know, good readers because everybody, you know, wants to like her stuff and, you know, she 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 needs people who are better readers than whatever. And she's a very good writer. And uh-huh. you know, I was I was feeling like you know what I got a little bit of time, and I said, okay, do you want me to read something? I I will read something for you. And she mm-hmm. she sends she sends me two chapters, and I was mm-hmm. glad it was only two chapters because I didn't really feel like reading a whole thing. But she's a good writer, so. And it was so cool for me to be able to read writing that was essentially very good and give notes 
that that really helped her. You know, she was really yes, happy. yes. And you mean like a Martian to... doesn't talk this way, like that kind yeah, of thing? Exactly like that. <laughs> Speak your truth. That was my note. <laughs> Speak your truth. <laughs> um, but you know, it kind of. She said, "I can't believe it. These notes are amazing." Blah blah blah. And I said, you know, whether they're amazing or not, I mean, I think the reason that they're actually specific and make sense is that this is what I used to do. When I was executive producer and showrunner, all these people would turn in scripts. Sometimes they were horrible. Sometimes they were very good. You're always happy to get a really good one. But it was my call as to how to rethink this or, or rewrite it and whatever. And I always... You know, part of the a cardinal rule in TV, anyway, is that if you don't like something and you're criticizing something, come up with you better have something better or, or a path or something. So that was all Always my training. Always gotta have a solution. Yeah. 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 So, um, so I, I felt so good that you know that I was able to help somebody, and, and uh, yeah, it, it made me think about one of the things I miss about TV that Television. I got the opportunity yeah. to do that. Somebody might say, "Well, why don't you?" Just when you were doing specs, when when you were writing, well, that is an option. You'd be a good teacher. When you were doing specs, what percentage of what aired was your writing? In the beginning, very little. In the beginning, very, well, in specs, first of all, my spec never got made, so my spec was like oh, okay. a mash spec. Let's say a format. spec did get made. Let's say you sold a spec to air. It, it, you know, it all depends on who is the executive producer. You right. know, usually, right. uh, when you're starting, you don't get a lot on the screen. You know, a, a lot right. gets rewritten. And part of the, right. you know, frankly, the sitcom process is, it's also like in my book, The Way We Work. What Robert Town talks about is that nobody knows really what makes a script good because right. it involves, you know, once the actors get at it, 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 it's a whole other animal. Yes, so in sitcom, in particular, sitcom is shot in front of a live audience. So um, mm -hmm. people, the, so and, and and you have many. You have to. You have one week to improve the script once once the script is locked yes. in the writers' room. So you have rehearsals every day, and every day you kind of see what's working, what's not. And you know, by the end, it's it's a group effort, and uh, that's kind of the deal. That's what you. Buy Let's just say that. this to close, because I have to work yeah. on The Bachelor now. But <laughs> to one thing that's also great about television is network television time constraints. Yes. You are on deadline from the minute you start a season to the end, and it doesn't yep. fucking stop. And that yep. really helps you because you cannot think that long about things. You have to come up with solutions quickly. And that is great training for ever, for anything. I anything. Agree. I agree. Because you know how it's, I mean, on our show, it's like, it's weird. Our, our deadlines are inversely proportioned to our success. <laughs> because I think ABC is trying to squeeze ever more programming out of the show, right? So mm -hmm. every year, the deadlines to, to deliver get shorter and shorter. And it's, it's crazy. It's literally crazy, but we do it, and it's great it. training. You do you it. Know? Yep, it's true. On that note, I have to go. I have to go. All right, Mark. The fate of our bachelor is a pleasure as always. Bruce, always a pleasure. A sincere sensation, as Woody Allen would say. Yeah. You are a legend. 
and you are a big Beatles fan. <laughs> Appreciate that. Have, <laughs> have a good day, my friend. All right, we'll talk soon.